Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Well, you heard from the executive director of the Vermont Democratic Party. Now you're going to hear from the executive director of the Vermont Republican Party. His name is Paul Dame. He's been a guest on this show at least once, maybe twice before. And he is always welcome. Paul Dame, welcome to the show. Well, Kevin, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Okay. Uh, we got a full dose of Jim Danton now. Now give us a full dose. You have a uh, – I went national to – local with him. Why don't we go local to national with you uh, to change it up? You have a convention coming up this weekend. Tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, this Saturday, November 18th, uh, at the uh, Hilton Hotel, downtown Burlington, we have our state convention. And this is part of the uh, regular two-year uh, reorganization process that started back in September. So the Republican Party is built from the ground up. We organize at the town level, and the people at the town send their uh, delegates to the county. The county sends their delegates to create a state committee. That state committee, uh, that new state committee, is meeting for the first time on Saturday, and will elect uh, our state um, officers. I'll be up for re-election, um, as well as uh, the other offices that are included in that. And in the past, that's kind of been a very um, simple, uh, quick, uh, sort of um, functional meeting. And what we decided to do this year was to make it a little bit larger convention and try to draw more people in, try to create a little bit more interest. And uh, and part of the way we've done that is during the rest of the day. So first of all, it's a full day event. starts at 8.30 in the morning. We've got uh, Grover Norquest from Americans for Tax Reforms coming in for our breakfast. And most of the day is going to be filled with a series of policy panels that are going to be moderated by our uh, Republican legislators. And we're going to talk about issues like housing, uh, education, uh, workforce, public safety, a number of different things that Vermont Republicans haven't really been able to advance in the legislature because we just don't control the process. And so as Democrats, you know, control uh, not only the outcomes, they're controlling the committees, what bills get discussed, what witnesses come in. We decided we were going to change that. And this is going to be an opportunity for our Republican uh, legislators to have the kind of conversations that they're not able to have in the legislature because the Democrats are, are really running the show in the committee room. So we're going to be, uh, you know, dealing with some of those uh, issues in, in housing, health care, uh, and other places that, uh, that, uh, that haven't had a chance to see the light of day in, uh, in Montpelier because of the, of the super uh, majority that Democrats hold. Now, uh, Dandenau brought me up short and interrupted me when I said exactly the opposite. Well, exactly that, which is Democrats control the apparatus in, in Montpelier, and he jumped in and said, no, we don't. Uh, state government's controlled by the governor. Um, what do you make of that? You know, the, the governor controls and his appointees control the discussion in the executive branch, certainly. Uh, it, it can't be, well, it's certainly not hard for him to get his ideas heard, right? Well, well, it's a it's a complete misdirection, right? The, the issue is the legislature and Republicans in the legislature don't yeah. have any authority. Right. The Democrats have had a complete lockdown on that. And that's where all the policies made. And right, uh, right now, having a super majority uh, of Democrats in the legislature means that the governor 
uh, gets overridden uh, on anything that he's he's trying to uh, to address. So you know we're we're trying to create a a positively framed alternative of uh, you know Democrats have been in charge of the state for over twenty years. They've controlled both the House and the Senate, and housing problem is getting worse. You know, public safety problem is getting worse. Education outcomes are getting worse. And Republicans are, are working now to say, look, this if you elect a, a larger Republican uh, elect, you know, a group of legislators, if we get a Republican majority, the things that these are the things that we're going to be addressing housing and the barriers to building housing that's affordable. That's what we're, we're trying to move forward on with these policy issues. Uh, and yet the numbers in the legislature, as you point out, uh, massive supermajority for uh, the Democrats. Um, how did it get that way, Paul? What what it, 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 you know, the, the, the evidence would suggest that voters prefer uh, the, the Democrats, at least in the legislature. I mean, they obviously prefer Phil Scott overwhelmingly. But how do you explain that supermajority? I think, uh, quite frankly, from the 2022 elections, it's a, a failure on on the part of the Republican Party to recruit enough candidates. Period. Right. You know, uh, there were a number of of uh, House seats, especially up in the Northeast Kingdom. Part of that was the lines got redrawn, and in those places where we saw the most significant change in North Northeast Kingdom in Rutland Bennington County, you know, where there was significant population loss, uh, that's where Republicans, because we didn't control the uh, the, the maps. Um, you know, we had to react to the maps that Democrats created. Uh, if you remember, the Democrats took the bipartisan uh, um, uh, redistricting committee and threw what they did away in the trash immediately on their first step and came out with a plan that was adopted by the minority view, which was basically just the Democrat appointees. So the map that we got back in March uh, I'm sure that the Democrats knew what they wanted to do. Uh, we we saw some instances where lines were redrawn very favorably for Democrat incumbents, and three very strong Republican women uh, got their district carved up pretty severely. And Democrats ignored the will of voters in places like uh, Manchester and Arlington, where all those towns said, hey, you should split this district up. It's not fair. The Democrats said, no, we, we think this uh, this suits us better. Uh, to keep this uh, two-member district, and they move forward with that. So I think there was a recruitment problem. You know, we were reacting to the map at the last minute. You know, map got uh, implemented in March, and then in May is the filing deadline. So we got uh, surprised in a couple places where we didn't. We thought we had candidates. We ended up with primaries, um, and then we didn't have candidates in other seats. So we're working on addressing that for the 2024 election now that we know what the maps are uh, a whole year ahead of time. Um when I was a young reporter in Washington, D.C., Grover Norquist was uh, was a pretty famous guy and still is and very powerful, uh, the originator of the famous phrase, I want to I want to take government and strangle it in the bathtub. Um, uh, and then another one of your speakers you're taking some partisan grief for is a guy named Scott Pressler, who was at the January 6th demonstration on the mall with Trump that led to the insurrection. Uh, wh- why do you have Scott Pressler, who is a denier of the 2020 election results? What do you get out of that? Well, I think that's not really a good characterization of who Scott Pressler is. Okay. The last year... 
Scott has been tirelessly working with Republicans in states all over the country, working on voter registration, uh, working on early and absentee voting, and really uh, a real uh, vote turnout uh, machine. He was in Louisiana uh, helping the Republican governor make sure that he avoided a runoff. He's been doing work in Florida, which has seen a dramatic change in voter registration. Uh, Democrats used to have a 300,000 uh, voter registration advantage. Now it's flipped entirely the opposite way. Republicans have over 300,000 more uh, voters registered. He's been going into places like urban areas like Philadelphia and knocking on doors that Democrats have given up on because they've taken those votes for granted. Right. Republicans have never really challenged. And so he's been reaching out to those areas and getting people involved uh, for any number of candidates, whoever's on the ballot. He's been uh, really looking at up and down uh, the ticket. And like I said, he's been in many states doing that kind of work. And I think that Republicans need to uh, accept the fact that we have to be competitive in early voting and in uh, in absentee voting. We can't take a position where it's Election Day only uh, or bust. Uh, we've got plenty of Republicans uh, well, I, in my district, you know, I, 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 when I was in the legislature in Essex Junction, I had people working at Global Foundries. They work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. They can't get there on Election Day if they're right. working that day. Right. So we got to make sure that we allow for people to vote and to vote early if they need to. And that's that's a message that, that Scott Pressler has been been uh, advocating in the last few months. And and I know this gets subtle, but I mean, if I'm you, I, I love the fact that no- Grover Norquist is coming. He's a big name in mm. Republican politics. And uh, I think any Republican organization would love to have him. But does Norquist's philosophy of, you know, government is too big, it's too inefficient, it doesn't work, taxes are too high, we need to cut taxes... How do you take that message and translate it into a winning election strategy in a place like Vermont? I get it in Virginia, but how do you do that here? Well, I think it's even more prescient right now because we saw one of the biggest backlashes in several years. A a number of senators and, and representatives said they got more communication about this new tax on home heating fuel than they've had certainly since the civil union. Uh, debate, and even some said this was greater. So I think Vermonters are very concerned, especially now as we get into November. You know, we've seen some snow, and people are going to start uh, burning their their home heating oil and trying to stay warm this winter. And if we're talking about an unknown tax, which some estimates say could be between a dollar to four dollars extra, I think that message of you know why are we putting such an enormous burden on Vermonters who are already feeling like the state's becoming unaffordable for other issues, right? You, you, you add that on top of the, the increase in uh, housing uh, prices and rents, you know, going up in relation to that. It just seems like the wrong time to be adding a massive unknown tax, which is going to have a certain level of bureaucracy, right? We already passed an appropriation for over a million dollars of salary for people just to figure out how they're going to increase the tax on home heating fuel. So I think that uh, Grover's, uh, Grover Norquest coming and talking about this, really trying to, to evaluate more carefully, are, are the taxes we're collecting um, appropriate for, for what we're using them for, and, and is that what the people want? And I think during the last legislative session, even the Democrats who ignored their constituents and voted for it know that this is very unpopular. Uh, last question before the break. Um, why isn't Phil Scott coming to this uh, convention of yours on this weekend? 
Well, well, uh, you know, the, the he's been dealing with flood recovery every weekend, uh, you know, in, in most days. Uh, there's a lot of work that is still left to done. And he's the governor of the state. He takes that job very seriously. And he should prioritize taking care of the people of Vermont over attending a, a partisan event. I think if, uh, you know, if things were a little bit slower, we'd love to have him. Uh, maybe, you know, as we look into next year, we can work on something together. Uh, but the governor's been been busy. I mean, you know, he was meeting with the uh, ambassador from Austria uh, just yesterday, and uh, he's doing good work. And I think he should keep doing the good work that uh, um, that Vermonters want him doing. Okay, Paul, uh, let's let's switch if we can a little bit to the national scene. Uh, you, you've got a. I, I asked Jim Danda now this same question, which is. Uh, I, I'm suffering from some vertigo here. You, you've got a. a, a an incumbent president, uh, Joe Biden, who by all accounts seems to be quite unpopular. And yet around the country this Tuesday, uh, elections around the country would seem to indicate that voters are not buying what you might call a hard right or somewhat extremist on abortion message. Uh, they rejected an effort in Ohio to limit abortion rights. Uh, the Democrats took over the Virginia legislature, and they strongly reelected a Democratic governor in Kentucky. What do you think's going on here in all your experience with Biden's unpopularity and yet that going on out in the country? What, what do you make of all that? Yeah, I think I think that uh, you know the abortion issue certainly uh, played. Uh, heavily in those areas where Democrats are are claiming wins, and uh, uh, I think another thing that doesn't you know that didn't get mentioned, like uh, like I was uh, saying before, you know, Louisiana, uh, you know, elected a governor that avoided a, a runoff for the first time in a while, and Republicans picked up a lot of seats in uh, New York elections. They had, I think, a Republican won on uh, I think it was Staten Island, but not Staten Island, um, Suffolk Long County Island for the first yeah, time, Long Island. Yeah, for fifty for fifty years. Yeah. Um, so Republicans had wins in, in other places, um, uh, you know, uh, it, where the abortion issue wasn't really on the table. Especially in New York, uh, the public safety was the main issue. So I think what we've seen is voters are caring a little bit less about you know red team, blue team, and are looking at what is the predominant issue in this election, and who are the candidates who are going to do what I think needs to be done in that election. So, you know, uh, in some of those uh, cases, certainly in, in Virginia, I think the Democrats were successful making it a referendum uh, on on abortion, and that's how they were able to win. They, they did also have some changes in their maps uh, because they're on the off cycle that factored into that. Um, and then, like I said, in, in other in other places where public safety has been an issue in New York, uh, Republicans did, did quite well. So I think we see this... Uh, uh, really a maturing of, of voters, I think, in some sense, to really look issue by issue and identify those candidates that are leading on the issue that everybody's talking about for that election. So we'll see how much that will carry over into, into 2024, especially as we look at a presidential race that could be taken up much larger, a much larger of the presidential conversation could be on foreign policy uh, stuff. Okay, and, let me try to get it, all It's interesting to see. How, how that's going to affect down ticket races? Well, okay. So let, let me get try to get more complicated here down the rabbit hole because yeah. it's a really good point you raised about voters seem to be maturing in what they want and don't want. 
let's let's put our optimist hat on and say, does this do you think this means that voters uh, are rejecting the histrionics and the Fox News versus MSNBC, uh, all the anger and the hatred on social media and are sending a message to politicians that, hey, grow up. Um, I mean, look no further than the Bernie Sanders chaired hearing in the Senate yesterday where two guys challenged each other to a fight. Are, do, you, do you think that voters are sending a message to all of us in the media, in the whole system, saying, you know, get your act together? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they've been saying that for a while. I think voters generally want desperately, uh, you know, candidates from both parties who better represent uh, people who are just trying to go and do the job. I mean, I think that's why Governor Scott is is so successful. He he wants to put away a lot of the the nonsense and just just get to work, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I think voters have been doing that for a while. Uh, I think in this particular election, you know, some of the the issues uh, they really became issue centered uh, campaigns, and some. You know, in some issues, the Republicans are, you know, voters give the advantage to Republicans. In some places, they're giving them to Democrats. So it'll depend on on what the main issue is. I know certainly here in Vermont, you know, our our focus is going to be on affordability, you know, housing being a part of that, energy costs being a part of that. I think public safety is a part of that, too. It's been incredible to see what's been happening to Burlington. I I, I don't know what Moreau uh, Weinberger is thinking. I don't think anybody... Uh, thinks that Burlington is better now than when he started out. And for him to run for a statewide office when there's, you know, murders almost every week uh, in Burlington, I think is uh, is going to be a big disappointment uh, for him because I don't think that Burlington has been going in the right direction on, on that issue. And uh, it's, it's spreading beyond Burlington, too. I think there's a, a larger sense that uh, crime is going unchecked, and I think that's going to be an advantage for uh, for Republicans, because we've had so many Democrats um, kind of downplaying some of these other issues. So uh, speaking of, yeah, I, I hear that. And now you have uh, the last time you came on this show, you said it's time for the Republican Party to move on from Donald Trump. And here you are now, months later, back on the show. He's been in uh, charged with 91 crimes. He's in civil court, federal court, uh, his problems don't seem to go away, and yet his his supporters seem to not abandon him. And here you are trying to build a Republican Party with him at the head of your ticket. I got to ask you, how do you do that? Well, uh, we're, we're going to find out, uh, you know, pretty soon. I uh, part of the reason I stepped in uh, as chair after you know Trump had lost in 2020 was I thought that there was an opportunity here to kind of build from the bottom up uh, a, a party that uh, could move on from that. And I was not expecting Trump to get back in the race. Uh, I think that as we start to get closer to some of the actual contest here, um, I, I think Trump is going to to lose his sheen of invincibility. Uh, I think that everything I'm hearing, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis has a very uh, well-built-out ground game in Iowa, and I think once Trump loses his first primary, if that's what happens, uh, I think you'll have a lot of people looking more uh, more carefully. I, I've got to trust 
uh, Chris Christie on his analysis. You know, he was a, a, a prosecutor for years. I think he's, he's got like 168 no record in terms of prosecuting, uh, you know, corruption cases. And when you've got two people that are very close to the president uh, testifying in, against him in some of these cases, it's going to be really hard to imagine a scenario where a jury uh, doesn't convict on that. So uh, I think as we get closer and uh, and we get more information on some of those trials, I think there are people who are going to recognize that maybe Trump isn't uh, isn't the choice for Republicans in the future. I think right now, uh, you know, some people aren't taking the race as seriously. There's still this sort of holdover effect from, um, you know, his his term in office. But I, I I'm talking to people uh, that are really making that calculation and saying, I don't think Trump gives us our best chance uh, to win uh, next November. Where does Nikki Haley fit into all this? I was talking to a Democratic mm-hmm. advisor in uh, Washington recently who f- f- said that uh, he really fears that Nikki Haley can beat Joe Biden. Yeah, I think the uh, the, the poll that I had just seen, you know, had her up between nine to ten percent uh, against Biden in a head-to-head matchup. Um, you know, where Trump was. You know, maybe he was losing Wisconsin and winning the other ones at three or four percent, which is still within the margin of error. So I think that's what Nikki Haley's case is going to be, that I'm going to be the, you know, you know, her case is that she's the best person for the general uh, election. And I think that there's a lot of Republicans that, that I've talked to that, that think that she could be a really good uh, move forward. Uh, okay. So we'll we'll see how that pans out. All right. Paul Dame, Executive Director, Vermont Republican Party. He's got a convention uh, this week. Where is it, Paul, in, in about 15 seconds? How do you go? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you can go to vtgop.org to get all the details. Uh, conventions in Burlington starts at 8.30 in the morning with breakfast. We've also got a lunch speaker, uh, Georgia State Rep. Misha Miner, who was elected as a Democrat and became a Republican earlier this year. Okay. So all the details this Saturday the 18th at the Hilton. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and it's WDEV. We are back, and boy, do we have a treat for you. Last week, we had a scheduling glitch, and we had to we had to uh, cancel our weekly visit with Bob Nay. But guess what? We have rescheduled for today, and he is back, not for the usual 15 minutes, but for the full half hour, Bob Nay, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Kevin. It's my treat. I am always seriously so happy to be on your show and on the station. Oh, thanks. Uh, okay, why don't we start with Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House in Washington, D.C. Uh, the headline in the New York Times is, in his first big showdown, an unyielding conservative yields. So can you can you give us the, the, the headline? Well, that's the headline. The headline should be this. Uh, he's a practical conservative speaker who worked where he could with his own party and the opposite party to get something temporarily to give – this is a long headline <laughs> – to give everybody a break. I mean, the headline should be that he, he was successful in this. Yes, it's temporary. It avoids a government shutdown, which would have seriously served no purpose. It doesn't balance the nation's budget. It doesn't make a point. And, yes, both parties have 
politically sinned for years of not balancing this budget, but this is the way to continue it. Now, Kevin, what's ironic about this, this is exactly what McCarthy was thrown out for as Speaker. Exactly. Right. So... So, so he's tempting fate should be the headline. Yeah, exactly. He's tempting fate. Now, I would point out that Becca Ballant, uh, the lone member of the House from Vermont, uh, uh-huh. in her first term, she voted for this deal. So uh-huh. you've so this deal got over the finish line in large part because of Democrats. Can you explain that to us? Oh, no question about it, it did. Now, I think he would have actually, if he needed more votes, I think he would have gotten them. What I think actually happened here was that, uh, you know, the Democrats didn't want to block something that you can't justify blocking. What I mean by that, if we go to the Democrats first, what this continuing resolution does, which is not the regular budget process, it does this in basically what you call a harmless way in the sense it's doing what they spent before for a few months, repeating that, and then they move on to try to get an actual budget process going, which they haven't been able to do, you know, like I said, for a long time. So I think that the Democrats that voted for this uh, voted to keep the system going. That was 209 Democrats. Now, 120 Seven Republicans voted for it. So a lot more, obviously, Democrats voted for it. Um, There were only actually two Democrats, um, one from Massachusetts, one from Illinois, who voted against the bill. But 95 Republicans voted against it. The reason I think there were those numbers is that some of the people in the Republican side, once they saw the votes were there, cast what they think back home is a safe vote. You know, I wasn't happy with the budget. This would what I would say, I guess, if I was them. Uh, I wasn't happy with the budget. Uh, I didn't want to shut down, but this wasn't the way to go. So, you know, I'm going to work between now and, and January the 19th to make sure this process hopefully goes better. I mean, that could be an answer. So I think they took a, a safe vote. I think if the Speaker needed more votes, some of them might have yielded. But there were still probably, Kevin, being candid about this, a hardcore group of 25 that weren't going to do this. So, Here's the jackpot question that I know you're going to ask me, because I know you well. <laughs> and, and that is, are they going to pull McCarthy on Johnson right. for this? Right. Yeah. Is that not the question you were going to ask? Uh, I know it is. That is the question. And <laughs> yes. I, and I, I got to say, I'm fascinated by Johnson as a human being. I mean, this guy yes. is a, oh gosh, he's not even an evangelical. He is, he, he hangs out with some of these folks who, believe in taking down the Constitution in favor of some sort of uh, confederation of states. Have you read about that? Yes, I read about that. And then he has a very interesting scenario on a personal level, too, about his finances, where he, you know, he's not a wealthy guy. Uh, then there were a couple of reporters, and I noted this with interest having been up on the Hill, and this didn't make any news stories, but there were a couple of reporters that said, yeah, he's he's really conservative, but I kind of personally get along with him. When right. you start to hear that, then he's somebody that has conservative, you know, principles and ideals to himself, but he's a lot more likable than, say, Ted Cruz, <laughs> to pick on Cruz for a second. Right. Right, exactly. Uh, and that, in the world of politics in Washington, D.C., can actually take you yes. a little bit far down the road. I, I would 
I would hearken back to the days of of the young Turks of Newt Gingrich and Bob Nay, uh, <laughs> and uh, where where you guys could, I mean, you came in, you took over the the, the Congress. But you could still make a deal. You had your problems with your, oh gosh, Bob Michael and the, the moderate oh. crowd. But you could still make a deal with Bill Clinton, as I recall. You, you could, and you know, because you, you're experienced with the Hill. And at the time, I, I mean, I can remember when the a, uh, anti-labor move came afoot. Fifty of us said, "Wait a minute, that's that's not a good measure to do. That's not fair." And when the, I call them the old bulls that had been around a long time, are like, who are these people? Gingrich stood up in a private meeting and said, wait a minute. There's different views in this caucus. We're, we're under one tent, but there's a lot of different elephants in this tent. And, and those were the good old days where you could actually then express your opinion. Once the members who didn't like it saw they were going to lose, then they didn't try to, you know, expel Gingrich because they lost. Today, you know, they might do that. Now, I think they're smarter than uh, they were with McCarthy. If they try to take Johnson out with vacating the seat, as one of them can do, which Gates did last time, if they try to do that over this uh, temporary bipartisan deal, I think that they really will put the House majority in extreme jeopardy because this doesn't allow the process to continue until Johnson can get a handle on something that's been lacking anyway for 15 years, which is, you know, is the regular budget process. So, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but at least this saves some people from themselves, because I'm, I'm telling you, I was part of a government shutdown, Kevin, and I can tell you, we got a successful wink and nod from Clinton, and he kind of got a wink and nod from us. We both kind of won. We both kind of lost. We did five balanced budgets. Uh, that kind of shutdown it didn't throw any of us out. But if you have a shutdown and it sits there and it goes nowhere, then moderate Republicans in particular are probably going to be gone. Wow. Okay. Uh, Bob, I, I was <laughs> – I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I was at an event uh, called uh, the State of uh, the Taste of Vermont, where we were in the uh, the Kennedy Caucus Room, and oh, wow. uh, and there was a big spread of Vermont locally grown food, etc. And Bernie Sanders was there, mm-hmm. uh, and it was as if God Himself had walked into mm-hmm. into the room. I, I was I continue to be mesmerized by the hold that this senator has on the imaginations of Vermonters. And yet, and then I see him, he adds the title of referee to his uh, resume where he, and and I go back to your day when, yeah, there was fighting, but a lot of it was performative. This thing yesterday between a Republican senator and the head of the Teamsters Union seemed to be real. And I was, I I have seen the video. It's amazing. Was real, and you know, uh, and you're right on you know the assessment of, of Bernie and the respect Bernie has. You know, uh, I, I was once accused during the 2016 election when he was running against Hillary. I was accused publicly on a radio station of of being a shill for Bernie Sanders, <laughs> and the, re- the reason I was, but the reason I was accused of that, I would be asked questions about Bernie Sanders, and I would answer them honestly about the fact that you know, yeah. He's obviously politically different than I am and some others, but 
Bernie was, was listened to, and he had a calm head about himself. And he showed that in that hearing, because you're right. This wasn't theater. This wasn't imagined. These two were willing to go right into the middle area of that hearing room and slug each other yeah. because the president of the union was no different. He's like, okay, come on. Yeah, you want to go? Come on. Yeah. And the senator, who used to be a, a boxer, I think, by the way, at one time right. in his life, yeah, he's taking his ring off and standing up. And Bernie Sanders handled it, and they listened to him. He handled it so effectively when he turned and said, you're a United States senator. He didn't, he didn't go on to disparage the senator, but he said, you're a nice United States senator, please. You know, and then he turned when the union had started to say something. He said, please, stop. So he, you know, he effectively, fairly shut them both down Now restored something. Now, Bob, uh, before we have to take our break, uh, this is the pox on all of our houses question. Uh, Bernie Sanders went on Anderson Cooper on CNN later that night and talked about this but then he and, and rightly so in some ways chastised uh Cooper and the media saying you know you guys play your role in this too because you know everyone's playing for your cameras you're focusing on the fight between these two these two guys and you're not focusing on the issues that of of the hearing that we were having and the issues that are important to Amer- the American people and i got to say he's got a point right Oh, he does. One time to a, uh, and you know the uh, Roll Call magazine of Capitol Hill, you know that well. Uh, one time I said to a reporter, we just passed the first budget uh, bipartisan appropriation process in the House history for funding committees. And I started talking to him, and he looked at me, and he said, Mr. Nay, you know, we really don't want to report when the plane lands. Yeah. And that's what he said to me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he did a minor story on it, but... That has a lot of truth to it, and what Bernie Sanders said uh, also does. And the media, you know, for example, really kind of encouraged AOC to have this sit in her first week in Nancy Pelosi's office, and they went there and covered all of it. When in normal days, it would have never had the attention, you know, that it got. And the media goes, I, I call it the sexy, spicy, I guess, entertainment part of politics, and then they will dominate. All I know about that hearing the other day, unfortunately, is that, you know, a head of a union and a senator were threatening to beat each other up. Yeah. And that that's all I know. And they can report on it, but I think Bernie Sanders has a pretty valid point. Yeah. Let's talk about Ohio, your home turf for a second. Sherrod Brown's in a in – a, the senator from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, along with John Tester, the incumbent senator in Montana, uh, those seem to be the two big Senate races that will determine – whether Democrats control the Senate or don't. What do you make of what's going on in that Ohio Senate race? I have, uh, I've known Sherrod Brown since 1980. We served as state reps together and then uh, served in the U.S. House together. So I, I know him well. And uh, Sherrod, uh, when Ohio was kind of a 50-50 Democrat, uh, Republican state, um, did quite well, you know, in, in politics, Secretary of State, State Rep, and then U.S. Senator after he became a House member. Uh, since Ohio has become a, you know, very red state, all the statewide office holders, et cetera, then there's been a target on Sherrod's back. Now, there's a three-way primary on the Republican side. Secretary of State has gotten burnt, LaRose, he's gotten burnt very bad off of issue one, the abortion issue. 
He was against issue one. Issue one passed, and he's been burnt by that. And then there's two other uh, people, and um, Marino is um, a very wealthy uh, business guy, and so the three of them are running in a primary. Uh, Sherrod, technically, uh, one would say, this is it, this is maybe Sherrod Brown's political waterloo. But I'm going to tell you that knowing Sherrod Brown as I do, and he's a scrapper and a fighter, and if anybody can, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the race yet. I've got to see who comes out of the primary, yeah. Kevin. But if anybody can can win that seat, he is the best candidate in the state of Ohio, bar none on the Democrat side. So it's not over with. Um, the mansion seat, I think it's gone. I think that is bye-bye. Uh, there's no way that Senator Manchin, uh, now that he's not running in West Virginia, there's no way that will turn to the Democratic side. So that seat's gone. And then the Montana seat, you know, that's, that's going to be a tough one for the Democrat side. So uh, as far as Ohio, it's right now, it's going to be a real competitive race. Okay. So, so you've got a, a scenario here where the Senate goes Republican and the House goes Democratic. Does anything change? Well, it would depend, too, you know, who's the... Who's the president? Yep. Uh, in in a way, um, then of course after that, looking ahead as political people do, uh, would be the midterm elections when the party in power really loses usually some seats. But that's been shifting around differently now because of the should I say strangeness of the Biden Trump election? I, yeah, I, I've got to call it something uh, different kind of election for our times. Let's put it that way. So the House, I think, is in a in is a real jeopardy point because they're fighting each other, and they need to completely stop that and get on a mantra of what they are, like. Bernie Sanders said in the committee the other day, there, get you know, what are what are we about? What do you want to be about? You know, balancing nation's budget, education, families, you know, inflation, et cetera. So I think that's one thing. If they don't do that, I see potentially the House to be in jeopardy. For next year, and you're right, the Senate may very well flip. What that may force is, you know, maybe maybe some more cooperation, possibly. Sometimes it's, you know, I was in a split government, and it, it did work. So it depends on the mood of the people, how much they're going to start demanding that their people in D.C. do something. Bob, let me ask you a personal question. I was in D.C. all last week, and uh, my daughter and I were walking between the Supreme Court and the and the Capitol, and oh. and we walked by the Library of Congress. And I know that you uh, you had the control of the budget of the Library of uh-huh. Congress, uh, and I just it was you know it's at night and you see those lights oh. and you the idealism in your soul just kind of wells up. And yet you wish for a, 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 a better future for everyone involved. And I, do you, when you go to DC, do you still get that, that, uh, warm feeling when you look at the Capitol or do you just see it for, for all the bad stuff? Two different ways. And I always said this, you know, every time I went to Washington for 11 years, every single time, and I walked into the Capitol, I got the same tingle that I'm getting right now, by the way, yeah. as I'm talking to you. Right. Uh, and I, I felt the same way, you know, about it. Even the way I left the Capitol, which is not the way one wants to leave office, you know, as, as when I got into problems, uh, when I returned to the Capitol, still had the same exact feeling. 
I still get that feeling and would get it tomorrow morning when I see the Library of Congress, the U.S. Capitol. I would still get that feeling, but I feel different about knowing that the building is not functioning as it really could. So our, our institution lives and our building represents, you know, what our veterans have fought for and what people argue for. But inside the building, I still get the same thrill of the process and the country that I live in. Uh, but as far as, you know, looking at the building and knowing inside, it's just not where it could be. It gives me a sad feeling. Well, my daughter-in-law works for the Library of Congress, and she has promised me a tour next week. Oh, yes. So I will take the tour, and I will report back to you on the air with a full uh, rundown now, of what we did. Let me give you an open secret, a little nugget here. Okay. There is an area, and ask her if she can request you to see this. Very few see it. There is a private little kind of open secret room uh, a large room for members of Congress if they want to go over at any time and just sit in in silence and read. Oh. Ask her if you can see that room. A lot okay. of people don't know about it. All right, Bob Nay, as always, thanks, and we will. Uh, we're going to see you. Fri- we're going to talk to you Friday again. But yes, but, sir. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Okay. okay. Thank you. Uh, that's our show for today. My thanks to our guests Bob Nay, Jim Dantonow, Paul Dame. And, of course, I know you're out there, Ken Squire. I hope you have your headphones on or whatever and you're listening to the show. Uh, it's an honor to have you in our audience and our best to you and your family. I'm always looking for guests who will provoke us, inform us, and challenge us. So please send me your suggestions. Hit me up on Twitter or vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal is to illuminate and inform. Remember... You can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast at WDEVradio.com. As always on this show, we talk politics, media, and culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. Reminder, I am here Wednesdays and Fridays from 9 to 11. You can also find me at KevinKLS.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. My own podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with on this show. Check out this week's episode about the Commissioner of Future Generations from Wales. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivergan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and all the folks at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here on Friday on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on Ken Squire's Friendly Pioneer, WDEV.